0: Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces. I'm joined over the magic of Zoom by Stephanie Carvin and our guest host for these Muskoka Chair Chats. Charisma <laughs> Mathen. So, Stephanie, what are we going to talk about today in our second Muskoka Chair Chat?
1: Well, I was last week we talked about where the charter came from. And today we're going to talk about what the charter isn't. Or what its limits are. Because we often hear ideas that the charter is uh, the important document. We often hear people invoke their charter rights. But actually, it's a far more limited document than what I think people realize. So we're going to try and talk about the negative today, what it actually isn't, and before we actually start getting to what it actually is.
0: Right. So last day, we had the origin story. And so today, we're setting the stage. We want people to understand what the the scope of that stage is and who the players are on that stage before we get into the actual stage play. Can you tell I watched Hamilton a couple of weeks ago? So I've got stage play on my mind.
1: If this turns into
2: a rap musical, I'm out.
0: That's actually kind of an interesting thought. Charisma, on to you. Could you rap the charter?
2: <laughs> I can't rap the charter, but our colleague Natasha Bach has choreographed amazing contemporary dances about the charter.
0: Okay, that's a
1: whole other episode. I can't wait for it. But just a reminder, this is a voluntary participatory project as (laughs) we go down dad joke lane.
0: And it's an audible podcast. (laughs) Okay, Charisma, where should we start?
2: Well, last week, we talked about the origin story of the Charter. And we also talked about the Constitution, how our Confederation in 1867 had its own constitutional document. And then that was added to in 1982 by the Constitution Act 1982. So the first point I would make is that the Charter of Rights is just one part of the Constitution of Canada. And indeed, it's only one part of the Constitution Act 1982. It's a really important part. But there are other really significant elements to the Constitution Act 1982. I think the most significant one I'll highlight here are the Aboriginal rights relating to the Indigenous Peoples of Canada in Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982. Those aren't part of the Charter. And so they're subject to an entirely different set of cases and principles, and they don't really intersect that much with the Charter of Rights. So as important as the Charter is, it's not everything.
0: So what's the practical consequences of that charisma? So to say that the charter has its own jurisprudence is one thing, but to say that there are parts of the constitution that are outside of the charter, what does that mean in terms of popular understandings of the charter? And I think you're alluding to the issue of Indigenous rights being outside of the scope of perhaps some of the provisions we'll talk about in a few minutes, like the famous notwithstanding clause, it's not applicable to Indigenous rights, but also then that has implications for uh, other components of the Constitution that come up in everyday parlance, including federalism, that is the division of powers, and things like pipeline politics. So sometimes I've heard charter-like concepts being invoked as a sort of override, if you will, on things to which the charter doesn't apply. Have you noticed that propensity as well?
2: Absolutely, including by the politicians who probably should know better, who are saying that you know, the federal government could invoke the Notwithstanding Clause, Section 33 of the Charter to protect a pipeline from being subject to indigenous claims land use claims like that's just not how it works i would also say that another important implication of the fact that the charter isn't the only part of the constitution is that there can be conflicts among the various parts of the constitution and no part of the constitution supersedes the other part you have to reconcile it all together so the charter is not supreme over division of powers. And it also works in reverse. So all the parts of the Constitution have to be uh, addressed in their own right, in their own merit.
1: So if I may, this gets back to my concept of our Constitution being a bunch of documents stapled together and then trying to figure out what the law is, which seems to be occasionally problematic when we're dealing with some of these deep issues with regards to federalism, with regards to, as you know, you've just mentioned, pipeline.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So one way to think about it is there can be a variety of constitutional issues that arise in any case. So an issue of pipelines can raise a question of the division of powers, right? Who has the authority to actually build the pipeline? It can also raise a question involving Indigenous rights. And those are going to be separate issues that the court will consider on their own terms. They'll consider the merits of the argument and then decide what, if anything, the Constitution has to say about a particular pipeline in terms of whether it can go forward.
0: And so if, if anything, the Constitution, it seems, then charisma is a series of buckets, if you will. And within the buckets, there's their own substance. They may have different fluids in them, but you don't necessarily mix them, right? You don't have uh, principles of constitutional law that are intermixing from bucket to bucket, but they still have to be reconciled. It's a poor analogy, but... um, Is there
1: a hole in your bucket? (laughs) Because it seems like there might be some holes in our (laughs) bucket.
2: Yeah, I would would almost think about it in terms of a garment that has different parts. And so in some ways, they're woven together, but they do also have their own independent existence, if you will. And one of the ways they're woven together or how the court interprets the Constitution as a whole, which we don't have to get to, but there are deeper principles that underlie the, the entire thing.
1: I trust Charisma to come up with the, the most beautiful analogy. I'm looking at my messy desk and I'm thinking of paper stapled together. And Craig, I don't know where you got your buckets from, but... Um. <laughs> well, for
0: Charisma said, never use a shirt as pants, right? Right. Okay, Okay. so uh, let's talk then about the actual charter itself. So we've got a sense then that the charter is its own relatively self-contained universe. So the next logical question, it seems, Charisma, is to whom does it apply? And so let me gin up a hypothetical here. So uh, you're tossed from your local restaurant or bar because the bar is upset with some profanity uh, or racial innuendo that you've leveled at uh, a co-patron and you turn around and you say, you've now violated my freedom of expression. Does that make any sense in charter terms?
2: No, it doesn't. Assuming that the restaurant is acting entirely on its own and it's not obeying some sort of government dictate. So the charter applies to governments. It protects us. It protects individuals. But it is obligatory, it is binding on governments, on agents of the state. And this is a really important point around which there can be understandable confusion because in Canada we have the Charter of Rights, but we also have statutes that do apply to private parties in some situations, and those are human rights statutes which apply in the provinces and at the federal level that bind private parties to, for example, not discriminate against you when you're trying to rent an apartment. So sometimes there's a bit of a fuzziness there that people who aren't familiar with law might get confused by. But when you're talking about the Charter of Rights, it only applies to governments, to state actors, to law.
1: For example, if I start writing terrible, I mean, I write terrible tweets anyways, but let's say I start writing offensive tweets and Twitter seeks to ban me. My rights are not being violated under the Charter of Rights
2: and Freedoms. Your rights are not being violated under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms because Twitter is not acting as an agent of the state and Twitter is not applying some government regime to your speech. Now, we are talking a lot these days about how to regulate social media. And to the extent that that was to take some kind of official statutory or regulatory form, if the government was actually to pass a law making Twitter responsible for how it policed those tweets, there could be a charter issue there. But currently, there isn't. There isn't that framework. And so Twitter's just acting like a private party in the same way that you know, your neighbor can kick you out of his backyard because he doesn't like what you say. He's not violating your charter rights.
1: That's fascinating. That's something I'd love to come back to if we talk more about extremist views on social media that actually
2: we might be better
1: off not uh, regulating than regulating. But that's a really fascinating answer. Thanks.
0: So, Chris, just come back to this idea that the charter applies only to the government. What do we mean for charter purposes by the term government? This is really in yeah. section 32 of the charter, right? So there's an actual it's really, provision.
2: It's exactly. There there is, it's so it's towards the end of the charter where it says the charter applies to the parliament and government of Canada. So Parliament being the legislature, right? The body that actually makes laws, and then the government of Canada, namely the executive branch, so the prime minister, other ministries that actually enforce or are responsible for various policy type decisions. So that's what the charter applies to. And then there's a similar phrase for provincial legislatures and governments.
0: So what about things like municipalities? So municipalities aren't actually listed in Section 32. Does the charter apply to the decisions of municipalities?
2: The short answer is yes to the extent that the municipality is undertaking what we might think of as government functions, So certainly municipal bylaws, absolutely. And this is an important way that the court has read Section 32. It certainly applies to the legislature. It applies to executive actors. It also applies to people or entities that perform what are understood to be government functions. So that's a really important term that has specific meaning in the context of the charter. And it's not just anything that's done that's in the public interest or is a benefit to the public, but a government function like providing public education, like providing publicly funded healthcare services. The institutions that provide those services, even though they're not really what we think of as the state, like we don't think of a hospital as the state. When it's providing publicly funded health care, it is bound by the Charter. It can't discriminate, for example, against people.
0: So, So, all right. So that's the scope of the Charter's application. Now, I think another impression that people might have is about the degree to which these rights that are actually part of the Charter are absolute in terms of their ability to constrain the conduct of government. But of course, the practical reality, in part because of the way in which the charter was created in this this complicated negotiating history you described last week, is that there's built in flexibility, if you will, in the charter. And so where would you place that flexibility in terms of the actual architecture of the charter? Where is it, Charisma?
2: Yeah, so the most important location for that flexibility or nuance or give and take is actually the very first section in the charter. Section 1, which says the Charter of Rights guarantees the rights and freedoms that it contains subject to reasonable limits prescribed by law that can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. That's a lot of words, but essentially what Section 1 is saying is all of the rights and freedoms enumerated in this Charter are guaranteed but they are subject to reasonable limits. They're not absolute. And I just want to make a point that it's not surprising that people would think of rights as being absolute because it comes from a tradition of political debate over what rights are. And especially if you think of certain natural rights, that it is difficult to see conditions under which they might be limited because of how important they are to to individuals, to society as a whole. But when you are talking about just political debate and discussion and setting up a constitution to govern a political system, invariably rights will be limited. They will be subject to limits. It's very, very rare for a constitution to have absolute rights. It's just that in Canada, it's more explicit. You have it right at the outset in section one.
1: So sure. if I may, this is where we always get these kind of cliched statements of you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, right? That's not protected speech. So, The right to swing my fist ends at your face. These kinds of things that we often hear. I think that comes from the American experience because as you just stated Canada is a bit weird in, in just straight up saying point one, okay, there are reasonable limits that we can apply here.
2: Yeah. And, and the way that to think about it is we live in a community. We all have effects on each other, and one of the purposes of law, of a legal order, is to govern our relationships. And in order to do that, people have to be subject to certain restrictions in what they can do, even if they really, really want to do something. The most obvious example is criminal law, of course, but even other kinds of activity that's not per se criminal, but you could be engaging in activity that it just makes sense to have some restrictions on. Maybe it's use of a public space that if there were no limits, then nobody actually could enjoy the public space because there'd be no way to control and ensure fair access to that space.
0: It sounds like charisma that section one must, given your description, involve a balancing of sorts. And so the the question I would have is, So how does it work in practice? So is it the legislature that sits down and says, we hereby invoke section one, and we get to decide where the balance point lies, and the rest of you who are subject to our legislation, you have no say. Is that the way it works, or is it a little bit more complex than that?
2: Yeah, well, it certainly doesn't work that the legislature will invoke section one and then end the discussion. The legislature will enact some law that probably has a whole host of moving parts, That will probably be fairly complex and that will reflect a number of different goals and policy objectives and often a number of choices. And it it may at that time consider whether there's potentially a charter violation that it has taken, it's given attention to, but nonetheless has decided to go in a particular direction. Or, especially if we're talking about laws that predate the charter, that discussion may not have happened at all. Then in today, someone will take that law to court and say, this actually violates my charter right. That person has to convince the court that they have a claim, that in fact they, they are being denied their freedom of expression. The court then considers whether the limit is reasonable. And in doing that, it will expect the state who is answering this claim, responding to this claim. To make that argument, they will have to demonstrate, that's the word that's used in section one, they will have to demonstrate to the satisfaction of the court that the limit that it undertook was reasonable. If it can show that it actively considered a variety of alternatives when it was framing, when it was designing the law, that can help, but that's not the only thing it has to show. And, And importantly, you can engage in that process, even if the law is quite old. And you can nonetheless show how it is a reasonable limit, even if the charter wasn't really in mind of the lawmakers at the time.
0: So it sounds then like section one isn't something that the legislature needs to invoke or somehow uh, codify in the course of legislating, which I think might distinguish it from something else we're going to talk about in a few moments. In other words, it's, it's a tacit justification that can be invoked after the fact in a litigation scenario, and that sounds like the courts then have the final say. Is is that right?
2: The the courts absolutely have the final say under our system. I would just say, just, you know, sort of a, a little quibble, is that I wouldn't say that they invoke Section 1. They justify the limit as reasonable, consistent with Section 1.
0: In the litigation itself, the government would?
2: In the case, yeah.
1: There must be famous cases where the decision rested upon Section 1. Could could you just go over something recently?
2: Recently, there was a case where Canadian citizens living outside of Canada were challenging a portion of the Elections Act that said if you were outside of Canada for more than five years, you couldn't vote in a federal election until you returned to Canada. That's the democratic right contained in Section 3. So the democratic right in Section 3 says every citizen has the right to vote. So there's no question that on its face, if you're a Canadian citizen living outside of Canada and the Elections Act says you can't vote if you've been outside the country for more than five years, you've lost your right to vote, right? Your Section 3 right is violated. But then you move to the Section 1 stage. Why was this limit put in place? What might be some of the justification for preventing people who are outside the country for a particular length of time from voting in in an election? What are the counterarguments? how serious a breach is this of your right to vote. And in that case called Frank, the court in a divided decision ultimately decided that preventing those expats from voting just because they've been out of the country for more than 5 years was not a reasonable limit. That's a recent case. I will just also say that the first case where the Supreme Court really hashed out its approach to section 1 is a criminal case called Oakes, which was about drug trafficking. I won't get into the details. And the court under then Chief Justice Brian Dixon articulated a whole framework, a whole approach. So they took that pretty short sentence that we see in section one, and they constructed a whole test that we now refer to as the Oakes test. And so among lawyers, and especially constitutional lawyers, you'll often hear us say the Oakes test sort of almost interchangeably with section one of the charter.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. Thanks.
0: Okay. So Charisma, that's the section one discussion and section one applies to every right in the charter, right? Am I correct?
2: Section one applies to every right in the charter on its face. It's just clear. And the court in, in some earlier cases when it was asked, well, maybe there should be a different approach or maybe there are some rights that are so important that they can't be reasonably limited the court said, no, you have to at least consider the possibility that something is a reasonable limit. As we can discuss later, the reality is that there are certain rights, just because of the nature of the inherent content of the right, about which it will be very, very difficult to show that infringing that right is a reasonable limit.
0: Great. And so- There's another limitation on the scope and robustness, if you will, of the Charter. It's absolute status as a rights-protecting instrument. It's one that most people have probably heard of described as the notwithstanding clause, and the clause in question is actually Section 33 of the Charter. So what's that all about, and how does it differ from Section 1?
2: So the difference between the notwithstanding clause and Section 1 is the notwithstanding clause allows the legislature, so that's either either parliament or a provincial legislature, to decide that a particular law shall operate notwithstanding particular rights in the charter, which we'll get to. So they actually have to pass a law saying that a provision or a legal rule, a statute, is going to have effect as though some sections of the charter just don't apply. So they're almost suspending the effect of the charter for that particular law. So that's why we refer to it as the the notwithstanding clause, because unlike section one, where you're arguing that the law is a reasonable limit on a charter right. Under Section 33, the particular charter right just doesn't apply. It's no longer on the table. It's not a live issue for the court to consider. And so it's, it's a much more dramatic departure from the entire concept of rights.
0: So it sounds like the legislature itself, unlike Section 1, where I talked about this idea of invoking Section 1, and we said that really was a non-starter for Section 1, In Section 33, the legislature actually has to turn its mind to whether it's going to use Section 33, and it has to speak in the only way that legislatures can really speak in a meaningfully lawful way, which is through legislation. That suggests that some of the parlance you hear in the public discourse about, well, the prime minister should just invoke Section 33 and ignore the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That doesn't make any sense, right? Am I right to say that that's constitutional nonsense, to think that the executive could rely on it without the blessing of parliament?
2: Yes, it's, it's completely inapplicable. It's the legislature's decision. The only way we could see a link is that because we're a parliamentary system, if the prime minister or the premier of a province has a majority of seats in the legislature, he or she can probably get that result, right? Because they control the majority of who's going to be voting on right. the issue. But other than that, it's the legislature. The other thing I wanted to say was very similar to this idea of invoking. They have to make it clear in the law that they are invoking section 33. And generally what you see is they'll just copy the words from section 33. So they will use the word like notwithstanding. They will have to identify the particular charter rights. It's got to be really clear on its face for a number of important reasons, but also because it is such a dramatic decision and you want to give the public notice of what's being done, and then allow for the political debate to take its course.
0: So does it last forever, this carve out from the Charter?
2: It doesn't last forever. Any single use of Section 33 does not last forever. It's time limited to a maximum of five years, but it can be reinvoked an unlimited number of times. The legislature can pass another law, again uh, asserting Section 33, saying that particular legislation applies notwithstanding the charters. And it can reassert Section 33 an unlimited number of times, but every time it's only for a maximum of five years. The thinking behind that is that that's the maximum sitting time of any legislature in Canada, whether parliament or provincially. And so at least you have the possibility of another government, say a different government, being able to consider the issue. And indeed, if the use of Section 33 is unpopular enough, maybe it would actually affect that that election in the interim.
0: So if you use Section 33 and it's politically unpopular, you can't stave off judgment from the people because of the five-year period?
2: Not indefinitely. That's right.
0: Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned that Section 33 was a little bit different from Section 1 in the sense that while Section 1 applies to all rights, you qualified that with Section 33, and you said that it didn't apply to all rights. So to what does it apply, in, or more particularly, I suppose, to what doesn't it apply?
2: Well, it, it, it applies to a lot of the Charter. It applies to Section 2, which protect our fundamental freedoms, like religion, expression, assembly, and association. It applies to all of the legal rights in the Charter, the, the, the rights that apply to mostly criminal proceedings. So, the right to a fair trial, the right to an interpreter, uh, the right to be informed of your right to counsel. That's sections eight through 14. A related legal right to which it applies is section seven. I just carved that off because section seven has a bit more of an expanded scope outside the pure criminal context, and that's the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And then finally, it applies to section 15, which are the equality rights in the Charter. So it applies to really important rights, but those aren't the only rights in the Charter. It doesn't apply to the democratic rights, sections three through five. So the notwithstanding clause cannot be applied to the Elections Act, right, which sort of sets out how we vote and then the parameters of that. It also doesn't apply to sections 16 through 23, which are language rights and, and minority education rights, which were really important to the national unity aspect of the Charter that Pierre Trudeau was aiming towards. And it is no accident that Section 33 does not apply to those rights. So it applies to really important rights, but it doesn't apply to everything in the
0: Charter. Like, like mobility rights, too. setting clause would not apply to mobility rights.
2: It doesn't apply to section six, that's right. So sections three through six, sections 16 through 23 are not covered by the notwithstanding clause. The other point I would quickly make about the difference between section one and section 33, section one talks about reasonable limit. So you can have a debate about whether something is a reasonable limit and the court decides. Section 33 is just a carve out. Its use does not have to be reasonable. It's not something around which in the text of section 33, You'd see a natural invitation for the courts to step in. There have been arguments that there should be a role for the courts to review uses of Section 33, but to date, Canadian courts have not been willing to do that. And the Supreme Court in particular has said, it is not our job to delve into the specific uses behind Section 33. We just want to know, was it explicit? Did it articulate which rights are to be suspended, if you will? And the other one limit is Section 33 can't apply retroactively. So if you pass a law on May 1st, it can't apply on something that was done April 25th. They can't reach back in time. It only ever operates forward.
0: How often has it been used?
2: It's been used more than a few, but less than a whole lot. It's been used a handful of times. Some scholars have said there's actually at least over a dozen. It hadn't been used for quite a number of years. So it was used most famously by the government of Quebec when it applied Section 33 to every law in the province because it was pretty upset about the Constitution Act 1982, as we talked about last week. So it was almost used in this omnibus way. And then it was used. By Saskatchewan, in the context of back-to-work legislation, it was talked about in a few cases, like around same-sex marriage. But there was a period of almost two decades where it really had no purchase, no political salience, until about five years ago, when Saskatchewan again decided to use it in in an education case, and Doug Ford... Talked about using it in the context of a municipal election controversy. Ultimately, he didn't have to because the government won its case at court. And so the law was not invalid. And then most famously in, in recent years, the Quebec government has invoked it for its law 21, which requires people who are in, quote unquote, positions of authority to... Work with their faces uncovered and to have no outward religious symbols uh, on their person. So, police officers, court officials, teachers have to abide by this clothing rule. And right at the outset, when it passed the law, it said, We're invoking Section 33. We don't want to have any discussion about the law. In fact, that law is now before the courts, and there's some really interesting arguments about Section 33 in that case.
0: Has it ever been used federally?
2: It has never been used federally, which is interesting when you think of all the criminal laws that are under Parliament's control that have been struck down or that have been found to be inconsistent with the charter, you know, abortion, pornography, child pornography, child exploitation, you know, just a number of cases where the court in performing their role have said, look, the accused rights here are really important and this law doesn't adequately protect them, those legal rights I talked about. National security is another example of of a federal jurisdiction where the public sentiment would be really exercised. There would be a lot of passionate opposition, maybe to Supreme Court cases, but Parliament has never invoked it. And I think if it ever did, that would be a huge moment in Canadian constitutional law, potentially turning a corner that we couldn't retreat from.
0: There was a discussion during the debate over Doug Ford's possible use in relation to the redrawing of municipal boundaries in Toronto about what the intent was for Section 33. And there was a constituency who claimed immediate knowledge and past experience because they were involved in the historical event of uh, drafting the Charter that suggested that that Section 33 was only ever intended for those dire circumstances where Parliament or the legislature felt a need to assert itself against an aberrant court decision, that it was never intended as sort of a proactive, we get out of jail free vessel for the legislature. And there was another constituency that said that, no, no, that's nonsense, that it was designed entirely so that parliamentary supremacy could be asserted by parliament or the provincial legislature without any justification whatsoever. It didn't have to be tied to any exigency or any reaction to events galvanized by the court. Do you have a view on that?
2: Well, my view is that particularly when you're talking about something like Section 33, it's really important to look at the text. And while the background discussion is important, it can give context. It maybe can give some insight. Precisely because the debate was so fraught, and this is such a controversial part of the Constitution and certainly the Charter, You need to be really grounded in in the text. And what does Section 33 actually say? And Section 33 doesn't talk about courts at all. Section 33 talks about the legislature taking a particular decision to assert its supremacy vis-a-vis particular legislation and particular parts of the charter. That being said, there are all kinds of reasons why a government, a legislature might well want to wait until there is a negative court decision, and that's generally how it's worked. But you can see it from the opposite view as well, that if it feels importantly enough or strongly enough about a particular law, it really wants to signal how significant that law is to its overall agenda, and in a sense to remove some of the uncertainty, you could even say, even if it's only for five years, by saying, look, we're just taking this off the constitutional litigation table." we do not intend to argue about this in court. Now, there are some people that have made some interesting arguments as to whether Section 33 is, really goes that far, but if I think a plain reading of the text supports that ability, that power to use Section 33 that way.
0: Great. Well, thanks, Chrisma. So I think we've we've done a pretty good job at this point in the origin story and also then setting the stage for the key components that that comprise the chart of rights and freedoms. And so why don't we stop there for today and and we'll reconvene with our next Muskoka chair chat and we'll start to get into the proverbial weeds in our, well, I guess our Muskoka lake. So uh, thanks very much for uh, joining us today, uh, Charisma, and we look forward to continuing this conversation. It
2: was a pleasure and I look forward to it too.